The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk. I am Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on this episode from the band Cheap Trick, it is drummer Dax Nielsen. And I have to say, uh, I think you've heard me mention this on the show, I have gone down a complete rabbit hole of Cheap Trick, 340-song playlist in my iPhone, over 23 hours of music, and yes, I have listened to it from start to finish, so I have been spending basically a day listening to Cheap Trick over the last uh, few days, few weeks. So always, always great to talk to somebody from Cheap Trick. He, of course, uh, played on, um, Dax has been part of the Silver album, Bang, Zoom, Crazy Hello, We're All All Right, and of course the Christmas album. So we talk about all that, uh, being in a band with his father, and so much more. And on the other side, I come back with original Alice Cooper group guitarist Michael Bruce. So I guess if you want, you can call this my tribute to the 70s episode. But um, he had a biography that came out a few years ago called No More Mr. Nice Guy, the inside story of the Alice Cooper group. And he has now re-released it as a limited edition box set with all kinds of goodies. So I do encourage you to check that out. Uh, But first, a couple of episodes ago, I had author Robert Lawson come in and talk about his still competition, The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick book. And that was before, before I knew I would actually have a Cheap Trick interview. So I said, you know what, let me get Robert back on here. Because as you know, his book focuses on album by album, song by song breakdown of the band's uh, discography. And Dax is new to the fold of Cheap Trick. He hasn't been on every album, obviously. So I figured, okay, let me get Robert back in here. And just before we get to Dax, we're going to talk about the Silver album, the Bang Zoom Crazy Hello album. Then we'll listen to Dax. And we'll come back. And then uh, I'll get back with Robert and talk about the We're All All Right album, the Christmas stuff, and a lot more. And then we'll finish the show with Michael Bruce. So uh, here's a little rock talk with author Robert Lawson. The book is still competition, The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick. And we discuss the Dax Nielsen uh, portion of the Cheap Trick discography. Here's Robert. I would like to welcome back author Robert Lawson. The book is still competition, The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick. And I know folks listening, we just had him on, but at the time, I did not have a Cheap Trick interview planned. And then one appeared, one appeared, and here we are. So I figured, let's get him back on because we've got an actual member of Cheap Trick. We've got Dax Nielsen and um, Robert. Good day again. Uh, welcome back. Yes, great to talk to you again, Mitch. And uh, the book, of course, is still competition. The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick is highly, highly recommended by me, but. I'll admit, I'm a little biased. I'm a huge Cheap Trick fan, so it makes it easy to enjoy a well-written book about the band. But uh, I got Dax on the phone, uh, and I'd like to thank Chris Jericho for that. Absolutely fabulous to speak to him, and just great, great stories. And so we'll get to that in a couple of minutes, but I just wanted to get you back and not, not do the whole history of Cheap Trick again. Let's just focus on the albums and the songs that Dax has been involved with. Um, yeah. So why don't you start off and, and sort of explain to folks who may not know 
the history of Dax, how he got in there. I mean, obviously, we all know Bunny Carlos, and then all of a sudden, there was no longer Bunny Carlos. Um, just sort of talk to me about that transition, about how Dax just uh, became part of the band, just part of the entourage, the touring entourage at first. Well, the the the, the first time that a lot of us kind of learned who Dax was or, or what he could do would be in August of 1999, the band... Uh, performed a concert that they called silver for their anniversary. And it was done in their hometown of Rockford and they had family members and ex members and symphony, uh, members, all kinds of, uh, people perform with them during a massive show, uh, where they touch on all points of their career. And Dax was on stage for, uh, four songs, I believe playing percussion and kind of helping out as were other Nielsen and Xander children. But one of the highlights of the show was a stirring rendition of a song called Time Will Let You Know. And it's actually not a cheap trick song. It's from Robin's 1993 self-titled solo album. And he performed it as a beautiful duet with his daughter, Holland Xander. Yeah. And, and you know an what? Amazing it's amazing. It, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, uh, I've actually been listening to Silver recently, and that is that version of "Time Will Let You Know" is stunning, absolutely yeah. stunning. Um, yeah, yeah I'd, in fact, great. I'd like to see him do more duets. In fact, if they could redo "Surrender to Me" for their next album with Holland and Robin, just do a daddy-daughter thing and, and put "Surrender to Me" out there, I think that just would be uh, mind-blowing. But yeah, go, go go on. Well, you know, Mitch and I are both fathers of teenage daughters. And I think when we, yep. when we see a performance like Robin Holland doing that song, it, it's a little uh, extra emotional for us and probably for a lot of uh, uh, men uh, in our position and others as well. But anyway, yeah. no, absolutely. During, during, yeah, it, it's, it's poignant. It's, yep. it's, it's magical. It's very powerful. Uh, but during that song, uh, Dax is actually playing the drum kit and bun is just, kind of next to it doing a little handheld percussion uh so that was one of our first times really seeing dax behind the kit and so to see him performing and he does drive the song forward he does a great job and i think it's very important to remember that in this front in front of this huge home uh, town crowd where they're doing the cheap trick like a legacy show of songs from their entire career Dax was only 19 years old wow. at the time of that concert. I didn't yeah. know. And, 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 and for those who don't know, they did one song from every album, which, which was remarkable. Just, just completely yeah, remarkable. It, right. As well as, like, Time Will Let You Know is off Robin's solo album. They did uh, the song that they did with uh, John Lennon. They did some covers. It, it, you know, it was a 29-song set. Yeah. that uh, went over three and a half hours. and uh, But to have a 19-year-old kid on the drum kit, uh, you know, pushing At, at this moment, yeah. Emotion, yeah, a very Was Miles on song. that too? Was was his brother My, Miles? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, both, both uh, yeah, Miles and, uh, and also Ian Zander play acoustic guitar uh, during that song. Wow, and of course... They did take me to the top from the doctor that night, which I love the doctor. So we'll get into that. And and for those of you who aren't 
uh, overly familiar with silver, though you definitely should be. Slash was on your all talk. You got Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins that came out and did Just Got Back. Uh, Art Alexis of Everclear came out and helped out on uh, Day Tripper. Uh, just an incredible amount of, of John Brandt, a former bass player for the band, came back. Todd Howarth, who's a personal friend yep. of mine and, of course, uh, was part of Fraley's Comet. Uh, came out and played as well, so uh, kudos to uh, to Todd. Uh, just just great stuff. Now, so that was a, a special occasion. We still had Bunny. Uh, we fast forward to um, 2016. The band releases "Bang Zoom Crazy Hello," and this is the first time where Dax gets to really be the drummer for Cheap Trick. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that album because. We've got some old songs like Heart on the Line that, that are demos from about 97, if not earlier, that are, you know, re- reprised, if you want. Um, what did you think of Dax taking over and, 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 and overall the album? Well, I think it's a great album, first of all. I think it's it's wonderful. If I, if I had to make a top 10 Cheap Trick album list, uh, that would probably be on it. It would definitely be on a top 15. I think it's a great album. Uh, it does give us a very unique opportunity to really compare Bun and Dax if we wish to, because uh, yes, uh, some of the songs have been recycled. So Hard on the Line, as you mentioned, it originally appeared on the 1990 album uh, Sahara by a group called House of Lords. Oh, that's right. And uh, that's right. I, and and I, I even have that album. Yeah, it, 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 that's where it originally appeared officially. And uh, Rick Nielsen even plays the guitar solo. And both Rick and Robin Zander sing the backing vocals on it. But Cheap Trick uh, demoed it for their 1997 self-titled album, which is another 10 out of 10 record. So that's we brilliant. can compare uh, the 1997 version with the version on Bang Zoom Crazy Hello in 2016 and really kind of see what Dax does that's differently from Bun. Uh, it's not too much. Uh, he simplifies the parts a little bit. Uh, Bun will throw in a couple of extra licks when he gets a chance. And similarly, the song Roll Me, also on Bang Zoom Crazy Hello, that was also demoed for the 1997 Cheap Trick album. Uh, back then it was called Rosie. But aside from changing Rosie to Roll Me, it's the same song. And we can compare Bun to Dax. And again, Dax just kind of simplifies it a little bit from what Bun did. Yeah, that's great. So I'll t- tell you what, let's let's get into the interview with Dax. And then after that, we'll come back and we will finish off with We're All All Right, the Christmas album, and uh, more discussion about Dax. But for now, folks, here is the one, the only drummer extraordinaire from Cheap Trick, Dax Nielsen. We are speaking with Dax Nielsen of... Cheap Trick, of course, one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, Dax, pleasure to speak with you. The pleasure is all mine, my friend. Yes, and uh, it is a good time for me to be doing this interview because I've actually gotten into the uh, the Cheap Trick rabbit hole. I, I have put a 340-song Cheap Trick playlist in my phone, and it has been following me around for the last month. I, I you know, I get to one song, and I, the next day I pick up from the song, I, and... And it's it's just been a, a, a month of cheap trickness of, of everything. And, um, you know, so, hey, pl- pleasure to talk to you. Here. So 
Where do we start? There's so much to talk about. <clears throat> the latest album, the one that came out uh, just before Christmas, is of course Christmas Christmas. Let's let's start there, and then we'll sort of work our way into how you joined the band and and your dad's band and all that wonderful stuff. Talk to me about the idea for this Christmas album and, and putting together um, these songs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the idea came from management. Um, one of our managers is a guy named Ken Levitan. He's a real prominent guy. He discovered the Kings of, Kings of Leon. He, he's a big-time manager out of uh, Nashville that is uh, working with us these days. And he had an offer... From from someone, I forget what it was, but somebody wanted him to put together a Christmas album. And, he, you know, he thought, why well, do the same old thing? I got this great band, Cheap Trick, that is making great records again. You know, not that, not, not again, but, you know, is making currently great records. And um, why don't we get them in the studio since they love working in the studio so much? Like, just go pick some songs and let's go do it. And let's make a, a rock and roll Christmas album versus the, the, the tired old, same old thing, you know? Yeah, and um, you know, I think the, the main idea was to get some originals, get some standards, maybe, and then get some some kind of British stuff that you know that kind of really screamed cheap trick and make it our own kind of thing. So it worked out. I I think I love it. It's it's kind of fun. You know, it is what it is. But it, if you touch the lyrics, I think it's just a great rock and roll album. You know what I mean? If you if it wasn't a Christmas album, it would just it'd be a great album. I think. Yeah, it really is. And now, now, well, of course, one of the first songs that you helped write or rearrange for Cheap Trick was the I Want You for Christmas for the, um, what album was that again? The A Very Special Christmas 25 Years. Right, um, right. Talk to me about that. And, and, and then why wasn't it on this one, too? Because that, that, that was an interesting retake of the early classic. <laughs> I think they, you know, that was already done. It was something that was released on a, on a compilation already. Um, I don't, that 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 was fairly fairly brand new into my my tenure with the band. So I don't I don't remember. I don't think I was privy to any meetings about why we were on that or what song we were going to do. But you know, I think it was. I think they wanted to just kind of put the, the the cheap trick stamp on a Christmas song, and I think that's how that kind of worked out. But um, like I said, I, I wasn't really privy to why or how that one came about versus and uh, i believe the first song off the christmas christmas album um merry christmas darlings was considered for that out for the very special christmas because that's that's an original cheap trick song but i think they just wanted something that was you know it's a compilation it's fun let's put something that everybody kind of knows but is your own so i think that's why i want you for christmas happened yeah, that was a good. That that's another great truck. But okay, so so let's let's go back to the beginning here. You're in Harmony Riley back in mm-hmm. the mid seventies, in the seventies, nineties. Cheap trick is right. Cheap trick is mid seventies, right? Uh, and of course, <laughs> a fine frenzy. But so around ninety seven, uh, Harmony Riley's around. You're doing original music. You're you're with your brother. You're 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 working it. Talk to me about that experience, and and at what point do you say, okay, uh, my dad's band needs me, you know, Cheap Trick needs me, I'm going to go fill in for Bonnie. Uh, just right. Let... Well, I, you know, I, I'll be dead honest with you. I've never, like, said to myself, my dad's band needs me, I'm going to go. It was always, they called me, or actually, the thing about Harmony Riley, in a nutshell, um, my brother and I started that in, like, 97, and toured together for about seven years till 2004. Um, 
And in 2001, we were actually doing pretty much the whole year opening for Cheap Trick. And about halfway through the summer, Bunny was having some serious back problems. And so Harmony Riley was the opening act. And one day he looked at me and just said, hey, man, can you do the encore tonight? And I was like, uh, do, I have a, do I have a choice? You know, and he said, no, nah, you know, like, please help me out. Kind of, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but that's, you know, the gist of what we were saying. And uh, so for about four shows, I did the encore. And then one day he goes, hey, all right, tomorrow morning I'm flying home. I'm getting back surgery. And you've got the rest of the summer. <laughs> so it wasn't really a thing where it, I, I didn't get any warning. It wasn't a thing where, like, I, I had rehearsed or had practiced to do that. But, you know, it's kind of I've been around the music forever and kind of grew up watching the guys and obviously watching Bunny. And um, I was in great shape. I was 20 years old, 21 years old, playing all the time. So then doing two shows was was not but wasn't that tough really. And I was young and young and dumb. So who cares? Like I'll, I'll, I'll play these shows without rehearsal. Who cares? It sounds great. And it, it worked out. Is, is that something though, that as uh, time moves on, you'd like to revisit either Harmony Riley or your own band and, and just say, okay, I can't be doing cheap trick, you know, 25 years from now. <clears throat> I'm going to have to move into my own thing. I, maybe, you know, it, it's tough. Um, I write music and I've had the opportunity to add a, a few things to the last couple of cheap trick albums. And I brought in a bunch of ideas that maybe weren't, or didn't fit or didn't work and, or didn't make the album, whatever. But I do write. And I, I wrote quite a bit with my old band um, that we've been talking about, but you know, in 2004, Harmony Riley broke up, and, and I said, you know, I'm not done. I think our, our bass player, he went into um, computer. He's, a, he's a, a yuppie in the burbs now. And, you know, our guitar player moved out to Colorado to trim marijuana. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm not going to go get a job. Like, I, I want to be a musician. So I, I moved out to L.A., and that's when my, my hired gun career started, if you will. And um, I just, you know, it, I put everything I had into that, and it, being your own artist is such a, it's such a hard thing. It's, you, you know, it's all about you, you create and you sweat and blood, sweat and tears and all the cliche things, but it's true. And, you know, you could write a great album and if you don't get the right manager or label guy to hear it, nobody will ever hear it. Or you record it and then the label drops you and they own it. So then they, you're not allowed to even release it. And it's just, it's heartbreak after heartbreak. And, you know, I kind of just decided that, working for other people was the way to go. And, um, I've kind of been doing that for a long time and it, it's steady. You know, I'll never be a multimillionaire cause I wrote a great album and sold 10,000, 10 million copies. But, you know, I can always jump from one project to the next and, and make a good living and do what I love doing. So I think that's kind of, I don't know that I'll ever do a solo thing, you know, as my prime means of, of making music. I think I'll do it for fun. And if I decide to record, I'll probably just do it all myself, like Dave Grohl style, and just sing, play bass, play guitar, play drums, do the whole thing. And if anybody wants it, I'll probably just burn a copy for them or whatever we do these days. <laughs> yeah, whatever we do, we just throw it up on <laughs> Facebook or whatever. Um, so, yeah. So talk to me about this unique situation, because when you think of replacement players and you think of hired guns and, you, you, you know, you think of Phil X going to Bon Jovi or you think of Tommy Thayer in, in uh, Kiss – you know, they're, they're their own thing. They, they brought in, they were rehearsals, whatever. You grew up around the band. You were with the band. You, you know 
the guy that you replaced, not just from the posters, but from being in your living room, from being at, at the barbecue. From uh, talk to me right. about how how it's different for you, and and it's just and coming into the band and, and going, okay, I know I'm the replacement guy, but I'm also not the replacement guy because I've been here for thirty years. Right. It's 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 tough, you know. I'm I'm next month will be eight years that I've been the official drummer for Cheap Trick, you know, not as a sub, not as doing a, a month and a half in the summertime while, while, you know, Bunny was out having surgery. This is like, since I've been the actual guy, it's been about eight years next month. And, uh, it took a good amount of years for me to, to really just figure out my place and kind of, you know, it, it's tough because everybody wants the original members in a band. It, it's a marriage. You want your parents to stick together forever. You don't want them to get divorced. You don't want a girlfriend to come in and move in the house and become your new mom. You know, that kind of thing. It's, it's too emotional for a lot of people. And, um, I never tried to be bunny. I never tried to be, I never, you know, it was up to the guys in the band to decide what my role was. If they wanted me to be in the band. Sure. If they wanted me to never be in a picture, you know, look at Daryl Jones from the Rolling Stones. He's been in the band for like gotta be 25 years now. And he's not in a single picture, you know? Well, okay. Well, that's, that's, the way it is, you know? So I never had a meeting with the guys that said, Hey, I really want to be in the pictures or, Hey guys, you know, I want to be a band member or, or any of that stuff. It just kind of, it, it's been a natural progression and they've been kind enough to, to use me for the albums, you know, to get this hired associate, like a studio guy, um, you know, professional studio cat. They could have used anybody, you know, they could have called Chad Smith from the chili peppers or whoever, you know, and they chose me and they, you know, they've, put me in the pictures and I'm on the posters and it, it's, it's just a great thing because I have an identity with the band, but, um, everybody knows, you know, they were around for 35 years before me, you know? So it's been, it's been a nice slow, slow progression to becoming where I'm kind of real comfortable being yeah. Dax from this chapter of cheap tricks, you know, legacy. And, and I gotta say, you know, I've been a fan since the beginning i mean uh, you know 78 79 80 i mean it was either i was listening to a kiss album an aerosmith album or a cheap trick album and yeah i love right. the original bemmers I, I you know original guys i i love but the, there's something about you in particular where i think you've brought an energy and a freshness and a new approach and that's not in any way to be disrespectful to bunny because bunny is you know one of the He's best legendary. drummers. Bunny's fantastic, of course. And so, so no disrespect to, to, to Bunny when I say this, but I just, I don't know. I, I don't know if we would have had uh, Bang, Zoom, Crazy, Hello. I don't know if we would have had all these these albums that you've put out in the last few years. It just seems as though the band is just re-energized. And, and, I, and I do, to me, think that part of the credit goes to you. I think you've just added that, like, hey, this youthful enthusiasm. Of, yeah, let's do this. Come on. Um, do, do you see yeah. that as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was hungry. I still am hungry. I'm, st- you know, I'm still in my 30s. I'll be 38 this year, so I'm pushing 40, but I'm not quite there yet. And you know, this is what I love doing for a living. It's what I was doing before Cheap Trick. It's what I plan to do after, <clears throat> unless I figure out something else I love to do. But this is what I've always done. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm a fan. I, I didn't care for Cheap Trick till I was about 20 years old. I'll be dead honest. I didn't think about it. You know, maybe it was too close to home. Maybe I like newer music. I like Nine Inch Nails and, and the Chili Peppers and Metallica. And I love Pantera. And of course, like I'd, I'd hear Cheap Trick and I'd go to shows all the time. And, 
you know, it wasn't even in my wheelhouse, but subliminally I was learning all of it. And, you know, just, you know, through all that, but I never really thought about it. And then kind of in my twenties, I started to realize like, man, they, they influenced the pumpkins. They influenced Pearl Jam, they influenced Green Day, they influenced everybody. And so I, you know, I started going back and really checking this and becoming a big fan. Like it's, it's real, it's great rock and roll. It, the songs are well-crafted, you know, it's one of the only bands that I can listen to a full album of from that era and go like, wow, that whole album was great. You know, it's 32 minutes of pure brilliance, you know? Um, it's not just two hit songs and then the rest of it's filler that they just kind of threw on there or whatever, you know? And so when I got the opportunity to, to come in the band <clears throat> and I just want, there were songs I wanted to play that they'd never played live, you know, like most bands, you put out a new album and maybe you, tour on it for a year or two and you play two or three songs off the album you know that's every band does that and i think i went i got in the band I'm like have you guys ever played this song I'm like oh, it's maybe in 84 once or twice you know i was like well let's do that one tonight you know so we'd sound check it or, or just we're sitting in the dressing room and it's like all right let's go out and try it you know yeah. and everybody was willing to do it and everybody was excited I, I, then the fans latched on right away they noticed that there was new stuff and whether it was me or, or any drummer that would have come in that was a fan and wanted to play stuff, you know, the guys were willing to, to do it. And it was like, yeah, we, that's a great song off of standing off the, standing on the edge, you know, like we've never thought about playing that live. Let's learn it. And let's, if it sucks, who cares? You know, like Rick always says on, on stage, he's always like, you know, our mistakes are real, which, you know, there's no pro tools. There's no, we're not trying to be perfect up there. And we're trying to have, be a rock and roll band and have fun. And I think that shows, and I think the guys have been really excited and, you know, new management, new everything, new record label that is pushing the band to make new music and to tour and, you know, and then they got in the Hall of Fame and it was, you know, it's just been a great thing. I think in general, too, classic rock these days is having a resurgence because the guys that are still alive are the guys that did it right. And so people That's a very are good willing point, to spend by the way. money to go see that. Yeah, I mean, you could see like what's uh, Greta Van Fleet, I think they're called. Yeah, Greta Van Everybody's Fleet. Everybody's talking about them. Because they oh, sound they like Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. Like, right. Yeah, right. Cool, but you know what? They're, they're, they, weren't born, they weren't born in the 50s or 40s. You know, like they didn't grow up through that. So there's a different subject matter. Or there's just a different thing about it. Um, and I'm not knocking them by any means, but I'm saying older people that, that have some money now, are, they're going to take, they're going to buy two good tickets and maybe two more for their kids. There's four tickets that a band like Cheap Trick's selling versus one back in the day. So they're out, you know, Cheap Trick's playing bigger venues than ever. Maybe not ever, but, you know, than they were the past two decades. And, you know, new fans, old fans, everybody's coming to see them because they're still playing great music and having fun. And you never know what songs you're going to hear. You're definitely going to hear the hits, but you also hear stuff off of Next Position, Please, or off the brand new album. You might hear two or three songs in two hours, you know? So. I think it's just been a great deal for me to be a part of it, to see those guys having fun and playing songs that maybe make them stretch out and not just go through the motions, you know, that you might play in the same stuff every night. Well, and so, that that's one great. thing I really appreciate about Cheap Trick. They, they, they have that same mentality as Bruce Springsteen and, and as uh, Pearl Jam, where every night you don't know what you're going to get. Whereas there are right. other bands, you know exactly what you're going to get. And it's been 15 years of you getting the same thing. And it's like, stop, you know, so that's that's the great thing about a cheap trick show. But I, let me get back to the albums for a second. Silver. 
sure. uh, the celebration mm-hmm. of the entire uh, career, discography, all kinds of special guests. You and your brother are on the album, but of course, you know you're you're trying to, of course, uh, duplicate and replicate and 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 make them as cheap trickish as possible. Uh, but then eventually we get to boom, uh, sorry, bang, zoom, crazy, hello. And right. now it's your chance to be Dax. Talk to me about that album when the decision was made to have you on it. And how did you sort of say, feel approaching it? Do you say, okay, I need to be Dax. I need to be Bunny. I need to... How did you sort of go into that? Because at some point, you know, the fans are going to say, well, you know, huh... Um, what kind of pressure was that for you? <clears throat> uh, no pressure. Okay. One, I mean, one lucky or unlucky thing about being my age is I came, you know, I'm old, I'm young enough still to like have come up in the social media world where there's, there's Monday morning quarterbacks everywhere you go. You know, there's, Oh, I could have done that better. Oh, that Dex sucks. Bunny forever. Or, you know, not even me, just, you know, Chris Slade sucks. No Phil Rudd. It's like, okay, well, everybody has an opinion. You know what I mean? Um, and just no pressure because the band didn't put any pressure. There was no pressure from a label to, to have a hit. There was no pressure from anybody. It was like, hey, you guys want to go make an album? I'm like, hell yeah, we do. And, you know, we went in. That album was kind of made piecemeal. Like, we, cause we were touring so much. Hey, we got, we got to either go home for four days or we can go to Nashville or to L.A. and, and work on some tracks. Yeah, let's go to let's go to the studio, and then we go back on the road, and then a month or two later, hey, same thing. So like, I think we recorded that in five or six different sessions, you know, and kind of had like thirty tracks to choose from, you know, pick thirteen out of out of thirty, and that's kind of how we did it. And you know, definitely, I I wanted to be me, and at that point, I think I was in, in Cheap Trick for four or five years, maybe or three or four or something like that. So I'd already stopped trying to emulate identically what had been you know bunny's thing and kind of put a bit i found my 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 thing a bit more you know a bit of who i am as a drummer mixed with the cheap trick sound is kind of what i've tried to come to and i think that's kind of what i've found um so i tried to put that on that album every song called for a different feel or a different beat or a different vibe and i think we just took it you know individually every song as it came and said hey what do you hear here i kind of hear maybe the Southern girls beat in this one, you know, let's throw it, let's throw a nod to Southern girls. Cause that's cheap trick, but here's a brand new song. And this, you know, that's the sound that we're looking for. It's cheap trick. Great. Or, or, you know, maybe more straight ahead, heavier stuff that, you know, my, my old Pantera background would make more sense with like a power groove kind of thing, you know? Um, so I, I, I don't know. There was really no pressure put on me by anybody. I think it was, if I, to be honest, if I'd be like, "Hey, what do you guys hear here?" They're like, "Do what you would do." Like, or Rick's the, Rick wants Keith Moon on drums. He wants as many drum fills as possible. So, you know, I try to do a bit more than I typically would. I, I'm more of a two and four, you know, keep the beat, make the band try to sound good kind of drummer. And he's always like, "Okay, do a fill over the whole vocal line." Like, "Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, whatever you say, boss." You know, and most of the time, it's cool. It turns out great. Yeah, it really does turn out great. Uh, let me get over to we're all right. Or we're all all right. Sorry, uh, we're all all right. Yeah, we're you all, the first all right. Track on that one. The first track on that one. Um, you got it going on. Yep. Is a prime example of I'm doing drum fills throughout the, both. There's the, I think there's two verses in the song. Like I'm literally doing drum fills over Robin's or under Robin's vocals because those guys are like just go crazy, you know. And you kind of you know go crazy, but you find a nice happy medium where like 
I'm not stepping on Robin, but you know, I'm still kind of, whoa, it's not just twos and fours, you know? Right. Right. Of course. Um, let me ask you about some of those songs. You look at a song like radio lover, which was right. as far as I know, first demoed around nine, 1997 for the, the, the red ant or, or I, I think so. Yeah. Um, is that how sort of how the process comes in? Do, do the does the band come with, you know, all these sort of, I don't want to say leftover songs, but songs from their past, songs from the vault, and and sift through them and say, okay, let's find some parts or sort of talk to me about the process of assembling albums and a song like Radio Lover that was demoed in '97, if not earlier. Do you play it as you hear it? Do you do you give it your own little twist? do they just take the demo and, and, and just clean it up and put it, I mean, talk to me about stuff like that and, and assembling that new song music. In, that song in particular, um, radio lover. And then I think what's the first track off of bang zoom. Um, uh, uh, hold on. Uh, hard, the heart, my heart is on the line. Hard, hard on the line. That's, that's another one that was, that came from around that era that, right. You know what? Bunny, Bunny's parts were great. There were, there were, you know, so I kind of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So I kind of just emulated what he had already done on those tracks. Um, you know, cause that was, it's what, sh- it's what it should have been. And that the songs were kind of already finished. Um, and that, you know, th- there was only a couple songs on each of those albums that were kind of demoed a long time ago that could have been on an album, but didn't make it. Um, but for the most part, it was all brand new drum parts that I came up with or, or songs that we'd worked on in the studio or stuff that like, you know, Robin brought a chorus, I brought a verse, Rick brought a bridge, and you piece three things together from Frankenstein, you know, like bits and pieces. But, uh, you know, a song like Radio Lover was definitely, you know, add my playing to it, try to maybe change a few things, but it was definitely the original. The song was already pretty much written and and finished before that, you know, 20 years ago. So, yeah, maybe right. I stuck, for that one in particular, I probably stuck with what was already, what kind of was already there. Yeah, it's just amazing that all these demos that they have that just sort of sit there. It's like, oh, come on, just put them out. Um, early 2018, <laughs> we we already know that the band has announced that they're going to make a, a new album this year. So if you include the Christmas album, technically four albums in the last uh, three years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, talk to me about that album and sort of what's, the, what's sort of the, the working schedule on that is that something that we see in may and june are we looking for november uh and of course as more albums are being made obviously you're getting more and more comfortable uh how much more say do you have in it and and you know musically do we just is, is it cheap trick or do we start experimenting just where are we going with this well, new, i, new I can tell you we, we've already been in the studio for about four days this year um and we have about 12 songs already tracked um which I mean, out of those twelve, maybe two or three would probably actually make an album. You know, you try to go in, put anything, any ideas that anybody brings in, just put them down if they weren't. Like so, we recorded those earlier this year, and then say we'll we'll listen to it. It's already been two or three weeks, so we'll know what what to work on. Maybe hey, I got this great vocal line for that part, or hey, I got a better verse for that, or whatever. But I think the vibe definitely is is not to make another um, standard, not standard, but you know. Like you said, maybe experiment a bit more. Maybe try something that makes us kind of reach, makes us make us kind of scared, or maybe doesn't necessarily sound just like Cheap Trick right away, but could be the greatest album they've ever made. Who knows? You know, I think the Beatles were prime examples of 
you know, they change their style like every other album. Like, oh, my, is that the same band that's saying Twist and Shout? No. But maybe that's my favorite album now, you know, Rubber Soul or, you know, it's just crazy stuff that never been done that their initial fans were going, I, I don't like this, you know, and 40 years later, it's maybe the greatest album of all time. So not that it's making the greatest album of all time necessarily, but I think this, this album is definitely, there's no scheduled release date. If, you know, it comes to be, it will, if it is taking longer than by, you know, it, it has to be done by like April or May in order to, to release it by summertime. So if that's not working, then there's no pressure, you know, we put out three albums in the last two years. <laughs> there's no, we're not trying to, we're not trying to break a Guinness book of world records here. You know, it's like if there's songs and it's great and it's ready, then awesome. If not, we'll keep working, you know, no big deal. Talk to me for, Which, oh, Scott, Scott, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. No, I was, well, finish your uh, thought. I was going to say Scott Borchetta of our record label. He's, he's a big fan and you know, he just wants to to keep making music. There's no, he's not, he's not going to, you know, make $10 million off every album he doesn't care about that it's not about the money it's about his his one of his favorite bands putting out new music that he can listen to and be a part of and say you know wow i had a hand in making a, a number of cheap trick albums that's fun for me and great so there's no real like you know guy on the 50th floor of a record label building coming down on us because you know you got to be done by may you know may 12th or else you're dropped boys you know that there's none of that stuff going on yeah, which is which has got to be a great place to be at in in your career. But, but from your perspective, obviously, talk to me about why the band feels the need to make new music. Because you could go out there and play "Surrender," "I Want You to Want Me," et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Put your name on the marquee, and fans are going to show up, and it's, you're going to get the same opening slot or whatever. You have no mm-hmm. reason to do it. What do you think is is sort of compelling you and and your dad Rick, and of course Robin, to say no? We and Tom, we want to have new songs. Why that desire? Because it's it can't be financially motivated. I mean, you'll go play the no. shows and play Surrender, and fans will be happy. Why make it? Yeah, Why bother? Because yeah, I, 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 I think you know they've always been known as a live band, but they've always been songwriters, and they to this day. I mean, you know, I, we get emails from everybody all the time. Hey, I got this idea. You know, check it out. It's like, you know, everybody's got kids. Everybody's got wise everybody's got life you know and it's like yeah sure we just did 112 shows in the last you know eight months but let's take two months and not even think about music that that doesn't even cross your mind it's like no okay now i'm home now i can actually sit in my room in my studio and just like make music and you know it's live is so much different than studio and i think it's just i can't speak for those guys necessarily because it's that you know they're much older and they've been doing it for so long that I can't say why they still want to do it, but I think it's just in that they they were born to be musicians and I don't think you know it's not financially motivated it's it's art motivated it's it's just drive and desire I think that they right. want to keep writing and they don't have to because well, you know don't. I don't right. think they no they didn't think I want you to want me was going to be a hit and they or Budokan that was going to change their lives they were out making music and, and playing shows. You know, it's really just what was happening. And I think nothing has ever changed with Cheap Trick in that sense. I think they still love playing. You know, they go out and work their asses off. You know, they could, I always say Cheap Trick could literally do like half as many shows or, or less and just do corporate events where they pay you three times as much. And nobody's ever seen the band, but they make a good living and 
whatever, we don't have to work so hard. It's like, no, they want, they want to go out and play clubs and they want to go out and go to Europe and go to Japan. And we just got back from South America, you know, they want to do it. That's what, you know, they'd never really been to South America. We just did two weeks there. They played in Santiago, Chile once in their entire career, one show in South America in 40 years. So like, they were like, let's please, let's go to South America and do these shows. So, you know, there's still a desire like, man, we've never done that. Look, you know, we've never done this. So, I think well, it's just their kids. It's, well, it's what they've always done. It wasn't ever fine. We didn't, they didn't get in a band. If I can speak for them, they didn't get in a band to make money. They didn't get in a band to like be rock stars. They got in a band because they were four guys from Rockford that liked playing music and liked to go see bands. And, and you know, Rick sold a guitar to Jeff Beck in like 1967 or something. You know, like, you know, he was just, he was Rick back then. And so, you know, it's like, there's no quitting. Yeah. And, and nor, nor and people, should you know, they, by people, the way. People still want to come see him. I think as long as they can physically do it, they're going to still do it. It's not like, okay, we're going to retire next year. No, why? We still want to make a new, a new album and, you know, people are paying to come see us play. Let's go play. And what I find remarkable also, and maybe of course it's the fan speaking in me, is is that every new album seems to be sort of the next new essential Cheap Trick album to have because going back to, to Rockford and, and the, the Cheap Trick album of 97 and, and We're All All Right, and they're not weak albums. They're not, we're just going through the motions. They are truly solid, solid albums. I mean, songs like we said, Radio Lover and You Got It Going, Long Time Coming and Brand New Name on an Old Tattoo. And they're great yeah. songs. I mean, it's just great songs. Um, we did talk quickly about the age. Obviously, there's a huge age difference. There, you know. Do you at some point see yourself doing something like Jason Bonham and going on, maybe bringing Miles and, and have the Cheap Trick experience and sort of just keep it going down the road? Or when the band says, we're done, it's we're done and everything that goes with it is done. How, how do you sort of see that playing out? Because as a fan, I certainly would come and see you play with your brother and, and have the songs going on. I mean, I would. Yeah, I don't have any idea. I've never, I've truly never thought about that. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there's a, a demand for that enough to like really put yourself out there in that way. And it has to be damn good. I mean, how do you find something that sings like Robin and, and has Tom's style? And, and you, I think they are, I think Chip Trick is what it is because the guys are, you know, if, if Rick were to retire and they hired some, great good looking guy with long round hair, curly hair that could shred. I don't think it would be cheap trick. You know what I mean? I think, I think once they're done, it's probably done. I mean, you can still go out and play cheap trick songs, but you're not going to go out and market it as, Hey, I'm the cheap trick experience. You no, know, <laughs> right. Nielsen does Nielsen or, you know, no offense to the Zappa brothers, but no, like I'm, I don't have a desire to go out and play cheap trick songs. Just, you know, I think past that. Okay. Um, you know, I think a lot of things, too, let me say this, you know, Zappa died fairly early and Bonham Zeppelin was done fairly early. So a lot of people never got to see that live, you know, so I think the fact that Jason goes out and does such a great job doing that, people can almost feel like they heard Zeppelin live. We're cheap trick. We're still playing. Like, like when they're done, if you didn't go see them, then you're a jerk. You know, right. like exactly. that's your own fault. Like you don't need some tribute band to go out and then try to take the name on. I, I know. So I guess the answer is no. No, no way um, I'm gonna do that. Now I know that we that we were we were looking at doing half an hour, so let me just start wrapping up with this. Um, of course, we've said it a hundred times today. Rick is your dad. We know that. But in terms of being a musician and a guitarist, 
How do how do you see him? Because he he's very very unique in his approach to the guitar. It's not just shredding all day long, and it's not just little tricks. It's he he sort of incorporates everything into this very very unique unique style. How do you sort of see him? Because I mean, it's to have you know him around the house all day long. You don't sort of see him the way I would or another fan would. But how do you sort right. of see his playing as a musician? Uh, how do you how do you sum him up, I guess, musically? I think he worked his, his ass off when he was a kid. I, th- I think he, you know, those guys played so many shows live. They were playing five nights, a, you know, three sets or more, five nights a plus, maybe six nights a week for years. You know, I think before, you know, before Cheap Trick, he was in bands. And before that, he was in other bands. And I think he really, he cut his teeth on a lot of old blues, a lot of British, you know, new wave stuff and, old 60s British guys. And I, I think he learned so many things. And Rick's a genius, by the way. Like, the guy's super smart. So I think he learned more than the average human being knows how to learn about playing guitars and licks. And, you know, he, he'd, he'll be the first to say he's not Jeff Beck, but he learned a lot of things from Jeff Beck's playing. And, you know, there's nights where I see, like, somebody come side of the stage, you know, somebody that Rick looks up to and, he'll turn it on and I'm like, Oh my God, I didn't know. I didn't know he could play that good, you know? So, you know, I, but you know, he's a songwriter first and foremost. He'll tell you that. I think he, from day one, didn't want to be a lead guitar player. Didn't want to be the guy up front, you know, well, you know what I mean? So I I think he incorporates chords into his guitar, into his lead playing. He incorporates just different, he's just wacky so i think his guitar playing is wacky but it's it is it's well 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 schooled never no like actual lessons but you know he took the time to learn the guitar through and through and then added his personality and his songwriting ability to the way he approaches it you know there there are some guitarists out there where i think you could sit down as a student and you could learn to play almost like that guy to almost a hundred percent but i don't think you can learn to play like rick because there's it's not standard. There's just a lot of little deviations that just the textures are very interesting. Um, Robin Zander, of course, the man of a thousand voices. Uh, just talk to me about him because as we all get older, our shoulders and our back and stuff and our voices, but his voice doesn't falter. It, it's still the same yeah. voice to me of Robin Zander, mm-hmm. 24 years old. Uh, what's it like sort of being the drummer behind that voice, that presence, and the fact that he can do a soft song and a scream? I mean, he can go from Hello Kitties to Voices to The Flame to, you, you know, Surrender to Me, and it's just like, huh, wow, how do you do that? He's a freak of nature. I, I mean, it's it's one of those things that I think it's just, he's truly, it's, it's genetic. It's in his body, because like, nobody else can do what he does after all these years. I mean, very few people. I think, it, you know, he's like, maybe he's lucky. Maybe he, I think he knows how to sing. He was, he was taught correctly how to use his voice properly. So he never blew it out. But at the same time, it's, I mean, so fortunate. And so like, blessed or whatever word you want to use that like his body hasn't faltered on him. You know, I, he just goes out there and, and sings so loud every night. I mean, he warms up by screaming. He's not, He's not doing follow so you know that kind of stuff. He's he's backstage screaming his ass off to get his, his voice up to show strength. You know, um, I don't know how he does it. I'm not a singer. I mean, I, I kind of do I do gang vocals, but I'm not. I can't sing 
like that at all. So I, I, I can't speak for that, how he does it, but I don't know that he knows. I think he's just really kind of lucky and, and fortunate and he's treated himself. He's, you know, he doesn't go overboard with the partying or any of that stuff. So I think he's kind of lived his life in order, in order to maintain his voice and it's, it's worked. And it, 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 it has, my God. It, yeah. <laughs> it, it truly has, because, you know, you, you, you hear, you know, the ACDC or, or what, and, and there's the voice of ACD and it's sort of just it. But if you look at the different cheap trick albums, you could almost think that you had seven different singers and it's like, no, that's just Robin. And you go, huh? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then of course, well, I'll finish on this. Um, Bunny Carlos, he, of course, yeah. like your dad, his drumming is, unique it's different when people start were doing polls in the 1970s not often would he be considered for best drummer which was silly because what he does is so unique for, and from from gonna raise hell to the intro to um, ain't that a shame talk to me about his drumming style and, and what has that learned in your drumming style because you to be able to sort of do some of the fills he did and some of the jazz passages and some of the metal passages right it's 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 unique and it must be sort of difficult to, to copy and not copy, but to, to sort of follow in his footsteps. Emulate. Yeah. Right. Yeah, emulate. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, Bunny, first and foremost swings, he's got a swing to him. He's not stiff. He's not, he's loose. You know, his style was always, he's a left-handed guy that plays right-handed drums, which is uh, it, it automatically makes him think a little Ringo was the same way. Like he led his fills with his left hand versus his right which kind of makes you, it, his drum fills sound different. There's something about it, if you didn't really know, you couldn't put your finger on it, but you realize, oh, he's a left-handed drummer playing right-handed drums. So he start, the way he ends things, when he starts things, are a little bit off from the norm. Um, Bunny always had, what his signature thing was that he would ride the snare with his left hand, you know, which most guys, most guys just do, do, ghost notes is what they're called. Um, yeah. So between the swing and the ghost notes and then just his influences, you know, he's just, uh, he has his own sound. And I think one of the main reasons that I, I was able to maybe step in enough, you know, and sound close enough to the band was that I watched him do it. And I kind of grew up emulating the left-handed thing and the swing, which um, a lot of guys don't have or can't do. Some of the greatest drummers I've ever met that I'm friends with are like, I don't know how how you could play a whole show with your left hand going the whole time. Like it would kill me because they're not used to it. You know what I mean? It's like their left hand hits every on um, the twos and fours and that's it. That's all you think about. So, um, he's got a signature sound. It's a signature style that, you know, I was lucky enough to kind of work on when I was a kid. And when it came time to, to fill in, I could come in and, and it, the band wouldn't sound that much different. I mean, of course it wasn't, it wasn't bunny, but it was close enough to where the guys needed me to fill in. I was the right guy to call and I, I, you know, I knew the songs and, and whatnot. So I think he's a great drummer. He's still a great drummer. He, he, he plays in Rockford a couple times a month with his band, the Monday night band. And they play a bunch of old, like the stuff that he grew up on. He loves still playing Dylan and, and whatnot. I, I've never seen a show, but you know, my friend Dan plays guitar in it. My friend Andy plays bass. So I know they play just some old great blues and jazz, not jazz, but blues and rock and roll and classic rock tunes. So, you know, he's got a thing all of his own. Yeah, and and it's great, and and he's another one where I think 
if you were a drum teacher, you wouldn't be able to teach somebody to play like Bonnie because no. it's just it's not no. it's not it's it's unique. And uh, you know, there yeah, you, you know, I'll be honest. I'll I'll tell you the God's honest truth. I I got fired from a gig that I really liked doing. I won't, I won't name her name, but I got uh, fired from a gig because she said, I, "Man, you swing." I don't know. Can I curse on this? Yes, of course, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, she, you know, she wrote me this long email. This, this email I, I worked for, and she's like, "You swing the fuck out of all my songs, but you knock it off." Like she was being mean. Like, could you play differently? And I'm like, I you hired me because you liked the way I played, and then I started playing with her, and she fired me because like. I couldn't straighten out her music enough. Like she wanted just starched drums, just plain and simple, straight drumming. And I'm like, sorry, buddy, I swing. Like, I apologize. You know, yeah. Hire sorry, a drum machine sorry. if you want that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she literally, she sent me this like scathing email finally before, before it all ended saying like, you got one more chance to stop swinging. It's like, okay, well I'll try, but it's not going to work. And, and you know, I was hungry and needed the money, so I, I didn't quit. But it was, you know, one of those things like, yeah, swinging isn't for everybody, but uh, it works for Bunny. And it works for me, so I'm going to keep doing it. And if you don't like it, don't hire me. But if you do, I'm the guy. No, no, no. Keep hiring it. No, but I mean, seriously, that, I, I think that's the main thing I would say about Bunny playing. Is it's, got a, it's got a swagger to it. It's got a swing. Yeah. You know, oh, absolutely. So. And, and I would say the same thing for early Peter Chris with Kiss, you know, with Kiss. It wasn't mm-hmm. that sort of hard rock drumming. It had that jazz influence, and that's what made him just a little bit right. different and what made that, that, that classic sound work. Um, yeah, look at like the Ginger Bakers or the, yes. and those guys, Ringo. That he swings. like The Beatles swing. It's not straight rock and roll. It's, there's something different about it. That yeah, sounded it, different. It's, it's the swing. It's nice to be in the pocket and sound like a drum machine and stuff, but... But some, you know, that that swing, you you can't, you you just can't, you can't, you can't bottle it, and you can't, you know, it's what makes those songs great. Um, Dax, an absolute pleasure. I could go on forever, but I know we we both have kids that have that are sitting at home <laughs> waiting waiting for our, our kids attention, are waking up from their naps. I know. <laughs> yeah, and mine mine come in uh, at four o'clock, and and we're four forty five right now, and they're saying, feed me. <laughs> and so yeah, I got, feed me, Seymour. <laughs> see, feed me, but uh, just a great pleasure. And and I do have to say again, uh, like I did at the beginning, I truly, as a fan, appreciate that you're in the band because I really think there's a, a renouveau, as we say, a, a renewal in in inspiration and in performance. And when you go see the band live now, um, there's just a new texture to to the sound and and to hear the old classics like I want you to want me to, with just that little new sort of like a little lemon zest, if you want. It's like, yeah, that's, mm. that's, that's, I'm in, I'm in. And so I appreciate that very much. I'm glad that, you yeah. know, glad you appreciate what I'm trying to do up there and I'm, I'm having fun doing it. So, yeah. And, and I love the fact that you're Dax and I, not that you're a copy or you want to be, or you're not, you're Dax and you're in the band. I appreciate and it sounds that. like I cheap appreciate trick very much. Yeah. And it sounds like cheap trick, 2017, cheap trick, 2018 and keep it up. And, new album uh let's go hurry up get get in the studio and finish it because i'm i'm impatient (laughs) but thank you thank you for today i'm working on it (laughs) thank Thank you you. sir i'll talk to you too mitch absolutely great pleasure cheers bye now bye-bye you're listening to rock talk with mitch lafon rock talk and a big thank you to dax nelson for uh having taken the time to chat with me of course a cheap trick in the studio now, 2018, we'll, of course, see more touring and a new album. And 
none of this would have been possible without the uh, help of Chris Jericho. So a big thank you for making that connection for me. And now, um, just before we get over to my interview with Michael Bruce, formerly, I guess, of the Alice Cooper group, uh, the band, of course, has done some reunion shows. There should be some more coming up in 2018. We are going to talk about the re-release of his book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, the inside story of the original Alice Cooper group. But just before we get there, let me just get you a few final thoughts from author Robert Lawson. The book is Still Competition, The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick. And uh, we just want to wrap up our chat about Dax. And then uh, as soon as we're done with that, I will switch us over to Alice Cooper. And, um, you know, as a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, if you were to tell me that I had members of the Alice Cooper group and Cheap Trick on the same episode or any episode, quite frankly, I'd say you're a liar. But here we are and it's happening and it's very, very exciting, I have to say. All I'm missing maybe is an episode that features, you know, a member of Kiss and a member of Aerosmith together. Uh, so there you go. Uh, big thrill for me. Big thrill for, um, uh, just, you know, just big thrill. That's that's all I'm going to say. Big thrill. So uh, Cheap Trick, Alice Cooper, Michael Bruce. But uh, here is, once again, author Robert Lawson. We finished off on Bang Zoom Crazy Hello. We didn't get to the latest album. We were all all right. Released in 2017. Great album, if you ask me. I think... It is personally one of their strongest. I like when Cheap Trick rock out. I had a friend of mine say, oh, there's not enough textures. It's all in your face, in your face. And I was like, yes, and that's supposed to be a problem? (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? But this one does include some songs from the past again, like Radio Lover. Uh, Talk to me about that one and... How do you sort of feel now that you've got two albums under your belt with with Dax? I mean, he's he's right in the driver's seat, if you ask me. Well, he is. And in fact, if the first album, uh, Bang Zoom Crazy Hello, was Zach not kind of uh, pushing things too much, he was uh, playing it pretty safe. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I will say he's a strong, straight-ahead, reliable drummer. Um, he's not that different from say a Phil Rudd where he plays the beat. He, he pushes the song forward. Um, he's not as flashy or as energetic as 1970s era bunny Carlos, you know, but who is, uh, even, you know, bunny is not seventies era bunny Carlos anymore. And that's, that's not his fault. That's, that's just aging. Here's what I like about Dax. Um, and I mentioned it in the interview when you've heard as a fan, I want you to want me and surrender and, and, and all those songs a million times, he, he's like a lemon zest in a glass of water. It just, it just adds that little flavor and that little texture that, that makes the song interesting. Obviously we love bunny. Obviously those songs, you know, bunny made them classics, but when you go here, I want you to want me in concert now there's just a little bit of a difference that just goes, oh, look at that. The song's fresh again. And so I, I pay him a great compliment. I think I think he's made it exciting to see the band again. Not that if Bunny showed up tomorrow, it wouldn't be exciting. That's not what I'm trying to say. But it's just I, I love what he's doing. I love the band as they are right now. You know. Well, he well he has he's definitely made a point of slowing the tempos down. 
uh, when bands play the same material live night after night, uh, they do tend to speed up. And uh, if you've ever heard any uh, animalized bootlegs from Kiss, you'll know what I'm talking about. Right. So uh, one thing that Dax did is he's definitely slowing the tempos down to get it a little closer to the album speed in concert. But on album, uh, on the album so far, uh, or I should say on the first album, he was uh, playing it a little safe. I will say on We're All All Right, he is stepping out a bit, saying, right, here's a bit of what I can really do. And there's no better uh, example of that than the opening song, uh, You Got It Going On. Whereas in the earlier album, he was just playing a little safe, as I say. However, on You Got It Going On, practically every time that Robin stops singing, Dax runs to the front and adds in a little fill or adds in a little extra drum lick. And he does it almost every time that Robin stops singing and he does it a little differently every time. And that's, to me, that song is a perfect example of Dax kind of saying, okay, I'm here now deal with it. (laughs) You know, like this is what I can really do. I've, you know, I can really stretch out a little bit when I choose to. And uh, it's a, it's a really great song just for, even from a drumming uh, standpoint, uh, I think it's a great song. Anyway, uh, but a lot of great it, songs it, on there. Oh, uh, sure. Brand new, uh, but, brand new name on an old tattoo, and and nowhere, nowhere is a sort of gritty punk song. It, it, it's almost Ramonish in, in its in its uh, presentation. So, listen. I mean, uh, in terms of in terms of what Dax does, the song "Listen to Me." is more of him doing the Phil Rudd kind of thing. And I don't have a problem with that. I love Phil Rudd. Yeah, uh, agreed. Uh, I've, always, I've always loved Phil Rudd. But on You Got It Going On, and then you really hear him stretching out a little bit, and he's just adding these extra beats every single chance that he gets, and it's wonderful. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, listen, it's if you're going to have a replacement player, and, and I'm not going to start uh, bad-mouthing replacement players, this one's different because he was part of the family. He was sort of around the Cheap Trick camp 30 years ago. You know, he, he was at the concerts. He was there. He understands the ethos and he understands the band. It's not just some guy coming in that they got off of, you know, uh, wanted ad in some trade magazine. So I like that he's there and I like that he adds this freshness to it. Again, like I said, like like a lemon zest in a glass of water, just gives that little extra um of course another album that they had is christmas christmas that came out at the end of 2017 and by the way who does that anymore two albums in one year not a lot really to say about this one i mean it's a christmas album so it's obviously very you know time specific it's not an album that you necessarily want to listen to in the middle of july but their takes on run run rudolph please come home for christmas um what was my favorite one? Uh, uh, Merry Christmas, I Don't Want to Fight Tonight. That's the one I like. Uh, just great right. stuff, you know? Great stuff. Uh, and of course, yeah, that's they're covering, a, covering the Ramones. Yeah, they're covering, they're covering Slade. They're covering uh, the Ramones. Uh, they're having a lot of fun with it. They've, they've done a lot of Christmas projects in the past, which seems weird that a, a rock band from Rockford uh, would have so many different Christmas things. But, you know, they did an EP in 96 that had two songs and then they had a song on a charity album. Now they have a full on Christmas album. I guess these guys really like Christmas. They love Christmas. And and by the way, let's talk about that charity song. It was on a very special Christmas, the 25 years bringing joy to the world. They did 
I Want You for Christmas, which was a remake of I Want You to Want Me. And when they announced a Christmas album, I was like, oh, yay, we're going to get that song as part of a Cheap Trick album. And they didn't put it on. I was like, oh, what are you doing? Uh, so listen, if, if you don't have I Want You for Christmas, definitely check out the video on YouTube. Uh, an official video was up on YouTube. And if you can, scour the Internet and find it. Um, I own the CD, but uh, I Want You for Christmas. It should have been, could have been, would have been, but it wasn't. Yeah, isn't that the video with the puppets? It's the video with the puppets, yes. That, you know <laughs> Puppet what? You cheap know what? trick. The guy who made the puppets, he's Canadian too, Mitch. Is that the uh, Giuseppe? What's his name? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, funny. He's Canadian too. So so here we go. We got three Canadians all dealing with cheap trick. That's great. Three, three Canadians all uh, tricking out. But, uh, <laughs> you know, hey, a, a great album. And uh, so you look at that, you, you've got two albums that are out in 2017. And as you heard in the interview with Dax, uh, in January of 2018, they had already laid down a bunch of tra- tracks for the next new Cheap Trick album. So it looks as though 2018 might give us or is going to give us one new Cheap Trick album, if not two new Cheap Trick albums. Um, keep it going, boys. And um, keep it going, Dax. Uh, full full Dax supporter. There's, there's no yeah. uh, denying the fact that. I just love what he brings to the band, and uh, you know, and I love the fact that he talked to me. That's that's the bonus right there. Um, yeah, T- Team Dax. Team Dax. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, to be fair to other, I'm on Team Tommy Thayer and Team Eric uh, Singer, and if you keep the music alive, thank you. That, that's all I'm gonna say. Just, I love these songs, and if it takes Tommy Thayer or Dax Nelson or Eric Singer or whoever. To keep it going, please have at it. Yeah. Uh, I don't want the music it, it, to die. So, right. If the, if the choice is having Dax there or not having a cheap trick who records and tours, then by all means, yes. I, I want Dax there. Yeah. Same thing for Kiss. Same thing for yeah. You know, even Iron Maiden when Blaze Bailey came in, or or Tim Ripper Owens and Judas Priest. If it keeps the band going and it keeps the music coming, thank you. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to sit here and start bad-mouthing anybody. Just thank you. you know, merci, there are a lot merci, of Blaze Bailey fans out there. There are a lot of Ripper Owen fans out there. They are they are legion. Oh. So those, uh, those those lineups uh, have their fans, uh, and they have their, you know, they're, they're, they're worth it. Yeah, and uh, Ripper, Ripper does a great, great job, and... Uh, there you go. Thank you, Robert. The uh, the book, of course, still competition, The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick. And I shall be right back with original Alice Cooper Group guitarist Michael Bruce, new biography, No More Mr. Nice Guy, or should I say a limited edition box set of the book that he put out a few years ago, but this new re-released edition. Uh, there you go. Uh, and thank you, Robert. Thank you, Mitch. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Big thank you to Robert Lawson for chatting Cheap Trick with me. But now the moment that we have all been waiting for, uh, guitarist Michael Bruce. He has, of course, played on albums by the Alice Cooper Group, such as Love It to Death, Killer, School's Out, Billion Dollar Babies, Muscle of Love. If those albums mean nothing to you... (sighs) I don't know. I don't know. 
I mean, really, those albums helped define American rock and roll in 1970s or during the 1970s, uh, 1970s. Love it to death. To me, and I'm going to get some gruff for this, but to me, is by far the best original Alice Cooper group album. Caught in a Dream, I'm 18, Is It My Body? You're not going to get much better than that. Um, Ballad of Dwight Fry, Sun Arise. You know, come on. Where's the competition? Uh, of course, the Alice Cooper group then was Michael Bruce, Alice Cooper, Dennis Dunaway, Neil Smith, and Glenn Buxton. Now, in terms of a band that started off as a band, but when you look at those players individually, what you realize is that you have a super group. I mean, that is not a band. That is a super group right there. And, uh, you know, you, you look at the songs, you look at the influence, School's Out, Billion Dollar Babies. Without Alice Cooper and what Michael Bruce was doing and Glenn was doing and, and probably probably wouldn't have Slash. He might not have been motivated to pick up a guitar. He, he has on record said he's a big fan. I believe Dave Mustaine of Megadeth is the same, though, of course, he was a Kiss fan as well. But you go back to those 19, that, that time, the 1970s, and you look at Kiss and you look at Aerosmith and you look at um, Cheap Trick and those are the bands. That helped define American rock and roll. Yes, there were others. We're not going to say it was just them, but those are the ones that remarkably have continued to put out music, are still touring, are still going on about their business, new fans being created every single day. It is unbelievable what Cheap Trick, Kiss, Aerosmith, and... Alice Cooper have accomplished. And so, um, anyway, I got Michael on the phone. He, of course, he's got his new book, uh, new re-release of the original book, but, it, but it's, it's been updated and, and so on and so forth. No More Mr. Nice Guy, the inside story of the original Alice Cooper group. I do invite you to check that out. It is a very, um, it's a fun read. It's a fun read. Uh, you know, um, just, we'll leave it at that. It, it is a fun, fun read. So, without further ado, and I've said this before, I have a dude enough. <laughs> I've delayed enough. Here is the one, the only, guitarist, Michael Bruce. We are speaking with Alice Cooper Group guitarist Michael Bruce. The sort of new old book, is that how, do, how, how we announce it? No more Mr. Nice the new Guy. Old, the, the new old the book, recycled. right? <laughs> no, but uh, let, let's explain that for the, for the folks. Uh, in... Oh, by the way, hello, Montreal, to all the fans. And yes. Yes. This other people as well hello yes. Good. from arizona beautiful beautiful arizona which is where i'd love to be on a day like today in january <laughs> oh, but, yes, nice. um no more mr nice guy the biography originally came out in 2000 it is now up on pledgemusic.com as a uh, limited edition box set biography with all kinds of goodies um talk to me first of all just about the pledge music campaign and if folks go to pledgemusic.com and they look up Michael Bruce, No More Mr. Nice Guy, what are they going to get? Well, uh, from my understanding, when I talked to, uh, uh, I think it's been uh, the publisher's uh, Gonzo Media and a, a friend of mine, uh, Rod Ailing. And uh, what we did is we, what is available now is, is a box set that includes a lot of rarities, a signed document. And I, I'm not sure I... I we were going to include a CD, but I don't know if it made it to the deadline for the printer. 
but uh, they say it's has sold so well that they might do another limited box set. And anyway, uh, it's updated uh, from when I did the book in 2000 to the current uh, the current day, and um, it's a fast read. It's enjoyable. Uh, I don't know if you read Dennis Dunaway's book. Uh, it's I did, Dennis's, and I interviewed him about okay. it. <laughs> it's a it's a it's like if you were going to research, it's a research book. <laughs> it's so, uh, it's so complete. And so, um, just have everything in there. It's, uh, mine is a little bit more, uh, fast paced and, uh, and sort of a laugh and, uh, uh, the history in a nutshell, I guess you'd say. Now, now from the time that you originally wrote it or originally came out 17 years or 18 years ago now, uh, 18. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I'm 18. Um, what has changed? Have you updated the stories at all? Did, did you get any feedback from the guys where they said, hey, we didn't like that you said that or, hey, you should have said more about this and you you, you shifted stuff around? Or is it just simply uh, the same book, but as this limited edition? Uh, we went back and uh, updated some of the things. Uh, got a lot of, hey, Michael, you should have changed that from... from uh, uh, from Allison Shep, but uh, uh, basically I added just from what after 2000, uh, the rest of my career playing and uh, uh, doing different things around the country and uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and and up to, I believe, uh, the reuniting with Allison and his people and uh, doing the, we, we did a show in Nashville, a couple of shows that which led to the shows in the UK. Um, there was kind of a, a, a situation that involved the, uh, the typesetter, I guess, in the UK. He had got it all done, but did it all wrong. So we had to go back and find another typesetter to do it correctly. So it, unfortunately, it, it uh, made for uh, uh, accelerated pace to get it, you know, to get it out on deadline. So, uh, uh, but I know the package is a nice package. I think it sells for uh, something like thirty-five. $35 or something like that, but it's enjoyable. Uh, it's a little less uh, definitive than Dennis's book. And, um, basically I tell the story of, you know, my side of, uh, the Cooper, you know, Alice, uh, you know, what happened with the band. And, uh, it's kind of like, uh, now it's been so, it's been so long. It's been 18 years that, uh, a lot of the things have been resolved and which is great, you know, uh, I really love getting out there on the stage and playing for the fans, you know, because it's been a long time for Neil Dennis and I. But um, uh, very exciting for the fans, by the way. I mean, when the UK shows were announced, it was like, oh, man, I'm in Canada. I need to get there. And of course, I can't. (laughs) But then, of course, you two brought it to the living room, literally you know, within 10 minutes of you stepping off the stage, the the YouTube videos were up and it was like, Oh, look at them. They're... My, how times have changed. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, uh, but before I move on to some of the history of Alice here, uh, the the Pledge Music Campaign also has the Billion Dollar Babies' first ever live show in Flint, Michigan, oh, that's 1977. Right, yeah. Excuse me. Um, yeah. Is that the CD that's not there, or is the CD that, that might be missing the interview CD from 96? Uh, you just reminded me, there's an interview... And and the uh, Billion Dollar Babies uh, show we did Neil Dennis and I with Mike Marconi and Bob Dolan. Um, is it Flint or Muskegon? Do, do you remember what well, Flint ac- said? Well, ac- according to the Pledge Music site, it says Flint, Michigan, 1970. Okay, yeah, yeah. We did two warm-up shows before we went and played uh, 
at the Pontiac Silverdome, and then we did another one at uh, it was a UFO in Chicago at a club. I can't remember the name of it now, but these were like where we took the stage show out on the road and and uh, you know gave gave it a test run, and uh, so that's that's uh, somebody I guess in the audience recorded it. I'm not really clear on that. It's been a long time, but it, nobody's ever stepped up to the plate and said, "Oh, I did it." <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's included in an interview from, uh, was it 96? Is that what you said? 1996. 1996. Uh, boy, I wish I had could tell you who I did it with, but uh, it's been a while. But that's included in some other uh, collectibles and, and rarities that uh, uh, I can't remember now. Because uh, when I talked to Rod, he mentioned several things, and I, I'm not sure. I haven't seen the set yet. Uh, which things were included, which things were excluded. Well, you see, my, my goal is that this interview gets included on the next uh, re-edition. <laughs> That's my <laughs> okay. goal. But uh, let me go back in history, because the way it's sort of, we come full circle in two, 2017 with those shows in the UK and hopefully some more shows, to me is very triumphant and sort of like the nice cherry on top. But after you left Alice... And you did Battle Axe, Billion Dollar Babies. After that, you, you, you went silent for a bit. Talk to me about those years. Essentially, the 1980s, you didn't really punch out. I mean, there was uh, the, 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 rock, uh, the Rock Rolls On with ETR. Rolls, yeah. But essentially, you, you went silent. Talk to me about that period and, and why there was this sort of um, lack of 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 engagement or what was sort of going on in that period, the quiet period, as I will call it today. Quiet years. Well, I took some time, you know, after rock rolls on uh, to really get back together with my, you know, my children who uh, my wife, first wife and I divorced and I was out on the road a lot and, and uh, you know, they're growing up now and I, I wanted to experience the way they were still young so after Rock Rolls On, which is in Los Angeles for a friend of mine when I lived in Lake Tahoe, and then I came down to Arizona and was able to see my children, you know, more often and spend time with them and go camping and doing all those things that Dad likes to do with his kids, and that was predominantly what that time was about. And writing too for uh, for myself and and and, uh, and with maybe uh, thinking that. We're, we would get back together with Alice at some point. So it was a uh, personal time, I guess you'd say. Was, was it also, was there a sense of frustration or burnout with the business and just saying, Hmm, I'm done with this. Or was it really just let me reconnect with the family? Cause it was such a crazy time in the seventies that we really need to focus at the home base at the home level. Well, you know, the frustration wasn't so much with, uh, uh, you know, with the industry, although uh, I didn't realize it then, uh, you could still make money with uh, albums and, <laughs> you know, like it's changed so much now, but that wasn't really the thought. Uh, spending spending time with uh, getting back to Arizona, I was living in uh, uh, Michigan and also in Texas and uh, I came back to Arizona and predominantly that was what it was about. I also was catching up with uh, old musician friends of mine and uh, basically there was some frustrations with uh, uh, thinking that uh, we would be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm glad I didn't hold my breath. <laughs> it finally happened. But um, And also, too, uh, Alice went through a lot of his changes and uh, different people that he played with. 
and I figured uh, back uh, maybe I should get back in back into the groove a little bit more after uh, the kids grew up and they eventually moved up to Colorado. Um, my daughter lives in Spain. She uh, teaches English. I mean, she teaches um, English to uh, people in Spain, and uh, she's a documentary filmmaker. And so that was really important to me. And I, you know, I did things uh, musically, locally. You know, not not anything. Uh, you know, on a nationwide basis, I played some shows, but but it was, it was more of uh, getting into. Um, my family and, and, and writing again and playing guitar for, for the fun of it and writing music for the fun of it, rather than for, you know, any release or right. uh, any band at the time. So it, it was great. Um, uh, you know, we had a wonderful time and, and looking forward to the day, which finally happened. And, uh, we got inducted in 20, 2011 to the rock and roll hall of fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wish it had been sooner, you know, <laughs> probably could help my career more. But, uh, anyway, after that, then we, uh, did a couple things at Cooperstown for the grand opening. Uh, Neil and I, Dennis couldn't make it and things like that. And, uh, next thing you know, we did this, uh, thing for, uh, well, you did the Jägermeister 4D yeah, Jägermeister thing. Yeah. and then, uh, I think it was a couple of years after that, uh, Chris, uh, Chris from Dallas, who owns good records, I was bringing uh, myself, Neil, and Dennis out there, and then it turned out that Alice was playing there, and he came down to the store, and that was actually the, one of the first times, besides Cooperstown, where we got together, and and it was really, uh, it, it really sounded good. And I think at that point, Alice probably was thinking, "Hey, this might be something I want to get back into," and then it happened again, and. Uh, in Nashville, we played there with Alice when he played at the Jackson Theater. I think Motley Crue, he was opening for Motley Crue. And then another day there in Nashville, we did a, it was a music merchants and association we played for. And after that, I think that even Shep, who was kind of skeptical, if anybody really cared, you know, if the original band got back together, or uh, I think then he even saw the light. And so uh, it was decided that we do uh, some UK shows, and that was the deal clincher right there i mean the crowd went absolutely crazy and then now i i know uh the last show we did there at uh at wembley alice came back and he said the reviews were so good it was like we writ- had written them ourselves you know and he said <laughs> That's hey great i think yeah i think detroit and new york i uh, mentioned a couple places but uh i mean i'd love to do an outdoor concert and it's been so long and get up to canada that was a wonderful time up there playing and yeah, it really I just loved be. it um, so, I, I do want to get into into detail on the Alice stuff, but I want to ask you about this one album you did in 2002, I believe, uh, The Halo of Ice, live in Reykjavik. Oh, yes, yes. Um, um, you know, you had, for, well, for me, you, you had disappeared from the map, and I'm a huge Alice Cooper fan, and then you came back, and it was Michael Bruce, Halo of Ice, doing all these Alice Cooper songs, and, and I thought, huh, can you really replace Alice on vocals? Like I knew the musicianship would be there, but I was like, Hmm. And I put it on and it is such a great performance that you put on there. Well, You're thank very, you. Thank you. Um, talk to me about, about that, that show, those shows and sort of rediscovering the Alice songs, because you really, again, like we said, you had sort of been away from the whole Alice thing for so, uh, what was it like in 2002 to say, okay, this is as much my past as Alice's. Let me get on stage. Let me bring these songs to the fans. 
Exactly. Well, I had done a uh, several cities in the UK, and uh, I had met Ingo and Philly, his brother, bass player, and uh, they came to one of the gigs in uh, the UK, and uh, we got to corresponding and whatnot, and they put together a little mini tour up there, and we had uh, played together when Glenn Buxton passed uh, in Iowa. We did a, a little benefit there, a celebration for Glenn, and, and I played with Ingo and his brother. Ingo played guitar and Silly played bass. And then uh, when I talked to him when I was in the UK, they had mentioned they had a studio and uh, liked to put a band together. And so I went up there and we rehearsed for four or five days. And it was kind of a rediscovery of of music we had written, you know, like you said, 10 years earlier. And I got to play, you know, kind of break out of the box, so to speak. Uh, we did Halo of Ice, and then I, I'm trying to remember, I went back again, and we did another show there, and it was, we didn't have the crowd we did the first time, but uh, we videotaped it and recorded it, and it was, I, th- I think it was as good or, or even better than Halo of Ice. And it was uh, the second coming of Michael Bruce uh, recuperated. I don't know yep. if you've heard that. Yep. I, and, have, uh, I have it all. Trust me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Trust me. Uh, it was strange because being in Iceland, you know, there was like Reykjavik and this other town we played. It wasn't like there was a big tour <laughs> in the works, you know, for, for Iceland. Um, so uh, it, it really it got the juices flowing again. And I think, uh, Neil, I know Dennis wrote the liner notes. and he was, I was really uh, jazzed about that. He had really nice things to say. And so, when I came back, uh, I started doing more things uh, down the road with Neil. Uh, Neil would come out to Arizona, and uh, I did a lot of supporting things for Dennis's book when it came out. But I think there was a feeling that uh, Dennis and Neil had done things too. Neil did some things plasmatic. Dennis had started working with Joe Bouchard and his brother. And I think that we all three missed what we had with uh, with the Alice Cooper band. Uh, you know, that was one thing we hadn't experienced together since uh the band when everybody went their way so i think there was a growing feeling that uh well maybe our phone will ring you know the alice <laughs> and uh, so instead it was uh chris from good records in dallas and we did some sh- uh, some songs there and alice came down with uh brian roxy who played uh, glenn's parts and he was great so there was a beginning to feel like uh a comfort comfortable old pair of shoes or, you know, a nice rocker that you curl up with a book, you know, and I kind of pinched myself. I don't, don't think about it, you know, like I don't think it's going to happen right away. And, it, and of course it didn't, it took some time and, uh, but eventually it happened. And, and uh, I think it all started from like places like doing stuff in Iceland and uh, Alice could see that uh, I was still involved in music, even though I had been out of it for a while. But uh it uh, struck a nerve, I think. And then the last shows that we did in the UK, I mean, it was, it was amazing because uh, it, it, that thir- 30 minutes we played went by so quick. I hadn't even had a chance to perspire. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Uh, and the fans loved it. My wife was out front with her, my father-in-law, her dad. And that was really a treat, you know, seeing him, he's from a law enforcement background. He's there in the pit, you know, with the rest of the, 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 the our guests and uh, it was quite a quite an interesting thing it was wonderful it, it so really i'm was. hoping that uh well i'm hoping for right? more but i was gonna i was also gonna ask you because 
you know, we're we're getting to 2017, but we're 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 missing some time. 2011. Welcome to my nightmare. Uh, you've got oh, Bob yeah, Ezrin, right. good old Bob Ezrin, a Canadian uh, Canadian guy producing uh, Alice's album, and then you and uh, Neil and uh, Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner and 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 Dennis. I mean, it's, it's like the whole <laughs> uh, history. Play on this album. Uh, talk to me about that and how that studio experience was to be with not just some producer, but Bob Ezrin working on Welcome to My Nightmare 2 and then having sort of everybody, the old guard, if that if that sounds good, a good way to say it, there. What was that experience like to be on Runaway Train and I'll Bite Your Face Off and well, uh, what was the other one called? Uh, when Hell Comes Home. When Hell Comes Home. Well, I wish I could say that uh, I saw all those people when, when uh, I went to New York. Uh, of course, Neil and Dennis live in Connecticut. They were there. Uh, I didn't see Wagner or Hunter. Um, basically, it was Bob and, and Allison, Neil, Dennis, and I, and the studio guys and a couple of friends and whatnot. But, uh, you know, we, we worked on, uh, Alice chose some songs that we had done. Uh, my particular song was called Hellhole Number 9. And it was great, uh, you know, working with Bob again. Uh, unfortunately, the drawback for me on that song is, uh, I know he was using it to kind of lay down a scenario for the story behind the, the sequel to uh, welcome to, to my nightmare. You know, the uh, father comes home and he, the family's, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, yeah. Um, but, dysfunctional. And right. He's, he's, he's abusive. And, uh, the song had more to me, more dynamics in the version that I did. Uh, there was a lot more spaces. Uh, Alice had filled those in with uh, a lot of lyric. And so he did it. He did what he needed to do for, for his, for his album. But I was kind of disappointed. It didn't, it lost a lot of its power for me, but uh, other people said it was the best song on the album. And so I was like, oh, really? That's great. <laughs> you know, to hear that. And, um, Dennis and Neil, uh, we all got a, a kick out of it. I wish, I wish uh, Steve had been there and, uh, and Wagner, we did see Steve. He played with us at the rock and roll hall of fame induction in 2011. So that was, uh, that was a nice, uh, a, a thing that came out of the blue and, uh, really wasn't expecting. I did I, at that point, I thought uh, we were never going to get in, but, uh, I was surprised. And but I also got him. been de- Deservingly Pardon? so, but but you got in and deservingly slow L- late. Yes, but yes, late. Sometimes better, better late, late than never, right? Exactly, right. <laughs> and I had some issues I uh, had deal with as far as my health issues. They weren't life threatening, but uh, they definitely were things I needed to, you know, uh, take care of right away. And, right. and I'm glad I did because I'm in great health now. I lost a lot of weight. Uh, uh, over the last uh, two or three years, and uh, I remember Alice coming up to me. He goes, "Wow, I can't believe it." <laughs> he kept he kept it a couple of times. He came up and said, "Wow, you really look good." And so you know, I was feeling good, and I think that was another thing that, uh, frankly, I remember the road manager for Alice uh, saying to a friend of mine when he was playing out in uh, El Paso a couple tours back. You know, they were afraid to have me play because they didn't want me to die on stage. <laughs> I thought, well, that's not a nice sentiment. Uh, anyway. But uh, I'm in much better condition. Um, I'm the uh, what? I'm the seven. Uh, I'll be turning seventy in March. 
uh, that's the new 60, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and uh, playing is good. Uh, I uh, did have a little mishap. I broke a tendon in my right, uh, left hand and my little, little finger, um, had to learn to reuse it again. And I don't think it'll ever be back to where it was, but it wasn't like I was, uh, you know, Eric Clapton or, uh, Steve I or Wagner Hunter, but, uh, I can still play. I really worked around it, sort of a workaround and, and I can do all the things I did before, which is great. And now it's a, it's a, a nice thing. I can share it with my kids and I can share it with my wife and, uh, my my new family, you know, they never got to see any of that Cooper stuff. So yeah, well, my I, wife. I'm looking made forward to it. seeing you. Uh, hopefully, you'll you'll make it here. Um, I, I just want to ask you about the Billion Dollar Babies album. It is considered by many to be his greatest album, and you know, then there's the debate of well, it's the Alice Cooper band's greatest album, and Welcome to My Nightmares, Alice Cooper, whatever. It's, it's <laughs> you know it's 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 one of the greatest albums. Talk to me about that because the the sessions, as we know or as we've read over the years, were wild and crazy. Um, what was it like for you to put that album together? Did did you know that it was something magical? And also, at some point, when you look over your shoulder and you see Mick Mashbeer there or Dick there, do you go, "Hey, wait a minute, what, what what's going on here? You you've got me and Glenn. Why why is that guy here?" Um, was there any of that or was there like, oh man, these guys are really adding a great part. Good for you. Like, how did you sort of perceive that? Well, as far as Dick and, and Steve playing on the recordings, uh, I always thought that, you know, they added a lot, uh, even though, like you say, that they weren't in the group at, at that time, we were having situations with Glenn where he wasn't taking care of himself and he had a lot of extracurricular activities going on and, and made it really hard, uh, to do, but actually that album, Billion Dollar Babies, we had, I had anyway, had, had been wa- wanting to do uh, a more informal uh, recordings of, of that album. And so, and I was surprised to see that uh, we were able to pull it off. For instance, when we did the bed tracks, we were able to do them at the Galicia Estate in Connecticut by bringing the mobile unit out from the record plant. So, you know, we were in our own house, you know, our, our Three level mansion, and uh, it it was really nice because it had a, a lot of you know live, uh, not so studio oriented where everything is sort of sterilized and analytical. You know, it really made those tunes, uh, the basics, really happen. Then we went into the studio sometime after after that and, and did more overdubs of vocals and whatnot, and then we went to the UK to finish finish that and mix it. And I thought I think it added an international flair to what we already had um, in New York when we did uh, the overdubs, for instance, of Pointer Sisters and uh, Liza Minnelli. That added some nice things to uh, to the whole mix. Mick Bashper uh, was a buddy that when we were having trouble with Glenn and he was not really healthy, uh, we I went back to Arizona and. and uh, found out that Mick had been playing and he was in London. So we gave him a call and he came over and filled in for Glenn. Uh, Cause Glenn didn't do much recording on billion dollar babies. He, he, uh, it was, uh, getting to the point where he just wouldn't prepare himself, you know, and, and really sit down and focus on what we were trying to do. And that was a concern for me, but I thought the music in the album was the, 
it, it really grabbed you. And I know that's easy to say because I wrote a lot of it, but it just, it had a feeling when you write a song, like I remember back when we did Killer and Dennis and I went out when we lived in Pontiac, Michigan, we had a, a barn and a workplace for a horse paddock. And we, we went out and, and wrote Killer. And, and why every time I hear it, the hair on my neck and arms kind of stands up. And it was the same kind of feeling with a lot of the things that happened on Billion Dollar Babies. It was the same kind of feeling. So I was really thinking that it was going to do something, but I didn't think it was going to be, you know, what it has become. That was, you know, <laughs> I just, I'm a little, I guess I'm a little more humble. I, I really didn't anticipate it was going to be a, uh, you know, watershed album that it was, and, and the tour was, was amazing. Yeah, that that and the tour was amazing. I mean, uh, and every show, I mean, it was great. You know, sold out. People wanted to hear it. You know, it wasn't like we were trying to push it down their throats or hype them into anything. It was just really realistic and and felt great. And I I, I felt that same kind of buzz when we did the shows in the UK. It was kind of like, well, yes, we're not playing the whole set with Alice, he's got his other band and they're all nice guys and great players, but physically, I don't know if we could really do that uh, again, uh, playing a half an hour. Uh, I'm sure we could play an hour, but, uh, you know, in all uh, fairness, I, I think that, uh, with Alice's, what Alice has done in his solo career, you know, he needs to cover that in the same concert and then finishing with the original band. It's the best of both worlds. So, I, that's the way I look at it. And, and that's why I look at it too. And and his his show is also very very physically demanding. For for Alice, he gets to walk off stage and do costume changes, right. and so he gets exactly. a break. But for uh, Nita Strauss and Tommy and Ryan, they got to fill in all that empty space yeah. with jamming, and so that's you know doesn't look like much, but it's it's an effort. It's a lot. And they run around it. The way they run around stage, it was making me sweat. Uh, You know, they're they're just really all over the place. And that's great because I think it it really adds to a lot of the energeticness of the the music. Uh, And then when we came up, we just focused on what we played originally. And that, that was, I think something that Alice hasn't had in a long time. Uh, There's some chemistry that happens there when we get up and play that, uh, you know, I, I, I thank God for that, but, uh, it's, it's just, it's amazing. And, uh, it's undeniable. And the guys and Nita, uh, with Alice's band are big fans too. So it's a, a win-win situation. Oh, it really is. I had a chance to, uh, I've known Ryan for, for many years. And when he said that he was going to play with you guys at that record store, he was uh-huh. over. He was over the moon. I mean, he's like, I'm going to have Michael <laughs> Bruce standing next to me. I mean, that was, you know, that was his 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 moment. Um, uh, we're, we are running out of time, so I'll I'll wrap up with a, with a couple of things real quick. Uh, my favorite album has always been, believe it or not, not Billion Dollar Babies, not even Welcome to My Nightmare, but Love It to Death. I think that album just encapsulates that early energy of Alice perfectly. A song like Sunrise, Ballad of Dwight Fry. Just, I don't know, that, to me, that's, that's it, you know? Um, what are your impressions of that early album? Do you see it as being, we're, we were rookies and we hadn't really figured it out yet? Or is that, you know, uh, lightning in a bottle? We, I think, I think the latter. We, we had gone through quite a change. We had moved from Los Angeles 
and the West Coast where we did uh, pretty and easy action to Michigan. And Michigan, anybody knows about Michigan, uh, Europe and Montreal, a lot of your listeners probably get down there. It, it used to be, you know, the rock and roll capital. It, it was, that's where we really got it together there. And then that's where we, those years at Pontiac out at the farm that we met Bob Ezrin, we got in and did pre-production. It was a really game changer. And we went up to Chicago and recorded it. I think you're right. It just has this amazing force to it. And it, when I listen to them, they don't sound, again, I'm probably a prejudice, but they sound fresh. And the, and the, the actual recording of the music, the guitars has, have balls, you know, and the whole, the whole thing is still very viable to, you know, I think people who buy music today. And the other thing yep. is I would add to Killer and Schools Out are all from that period because we did like at that time we did uh, two albums a year for the, for those next two years after Love It to Death, we did Killer, and then the next year we did uh, Schools Out, and then uh, Billion Dollar Babies. But that by that time we had moved up to Connecticut, and we had been uh, our perspective had changed a lot. But I think those three albums, but Love It to Death definitely is is uh, one of my uh, yeah, all time favorites. I, I love that one, and. Um... And then I'll just ask you about this one, of course. Uh, Welcome to my nightmare. You're not on it. Alice goes off and does this sort of solo album. Um, was it your understanding at the time that this was sort of one-off? You guys were going to go do your thing. He was going to do your his thing. Or or did you listen to it and go, damn it. You know, we're screwed now. This this is too... <laughs> like, you know, when it comes yeah. out, you must have had a perspective. I had... Well, I had... Of course, for me... Uh, I, the way you explained it, I thought, you know, we had taken after the Billion Dollar Baby Tour, which was um, exhausting, we took some time off, and I had been playing with some friends of mine uh, who came out from Arizona, and they were living in New Haven, Connecticut, and, and started playing and got into do uh, four songs with Jack Douglas at the time, and Neil had did Platinum God, and, and Dennis was working on some things with, uh, I don't remember if it was Joe Bouchard back, and, but some other players, and we we felt uh, we we were working on this material. This was going to be after our solo stuff that we did. I came back to um, to Connecticut and worked with Dennis and Neil, and we started working on on uh, what became Battle Axe, thinking that that was going to be not necessarily called Battle Axe, but that music was going to be the next Cooper album. And it was really devastating and kind of a shock, you know, when it was almost like a family member dies. And uh, Neil had talked to Shep, and Shep uh, indicated that Alice didn't want to play with us anymore. So it was a, uh, it was uh it was devastating. But I think, like anything that happens like that, yeah, it also creates opportunities for, you know, some new directions. So we kind of swallowed our pride. Got a couple other players, Bob and, and uh, Michael Marconi, and went forward. So it did add a lot to. Are, are playing and I think uh, you know we didn't give up the shit we, we didn't quit the music business we just went on without him and, and I got a lot of, of uh, experience being the lead singer <laughs> playing guitar was, and that's that's rough but it, it definitely was a nice I, I, I think there's songs on there that I would have loved to have heard Bob produce you know with the, with the band uh, and Alice doing it could have been you know, even more incredible than, than, uh, 
than it was. You know, it, it wasn't a big seller, obviously, but but uh, I think the music. I even said to Bob Ezra, I said, "Hey, you know, when we started getting together after Nightmare, Welcome to My Nightmare," I said, "Hey, Bob, why don't we produce, re go back and revisit Muscle of Love, and we'll call it the one that got away." <laughs> Because he didn't produce it, <laughs> and uh, he goes, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> there wouldn't be any discussion over what the tunes would be. It would be great to see what Bob could bring to it, and uh, sort of, uh, you know, that kind of um, fun thing to do. But uh, that wasn't the case. But uh, Paranormal was great. Getting together in the studios again, playing with Neil. Neil comes out to Arizona for the, the January, and I hang. We hang out together and play music. Dennis uh, doesn't get out here as much because he's his, most of his family's in Connecticut. Right. But uh, we're looking forward for, to play Montreal and, and all, all over Canada as much as uh, as awesome. much as Alice can ne- negotiate it to. So we may meet again. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I, I look forward to it. And 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 I'll finish on this since we touched about the the, okay. the reunion many many times. Just. Uh, you know what? What is sort of your hope, other than than a few shows here and there? Do you want to get in and not just do three songs on an album, but actually just do one last Alice Cooper group, or even a live album without the other players, just the band? Is, is you know sort of put a put a, a period at the end of the sentence, or is? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I certainly you know would like to do that. I mean, I think a studio album with Neil Dennis and I. We could do that. I mean, that that wouldn't be a problem. But I think the reality of it is is that uh, that would be a lot of liability for Alice because a lot of people would say, "Hey, Alice, why did you why did you do all those other albums in between? You know, you should have gotten back to the, with the band a long time ago." You know, that would be kind of a hard pill to swallow for Alice. Or on the other hand, it could you know if the album didn't do well, they'd say. Tell us you were doing so well. Why did you pick up those old guys? Yeah, you know, true. Why did you go back? You know, true. But so I think we've him, gotten to a point where it doesn't matter. I mean, in 1995, well, the career's true. still going. But uh, listen, we're, yeah, how much more legendary can you be, right? Yeah, and 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 without being morbid, we're all down to our last 10 years or so in terms yeah, of of, of making music. I'm not talking about the living. clock. The clock is ticking. So and, uh, you I mean, know, well, for, for those things, I, I agree with you, and I think maybe uh, after. These some of these uh, shows that might lead to a, a live album would be a great thing. It better and we be. could have. <laughs> I want to buy it. I want to buy it. Uh, it. We could have. You know, it could be a double disc set. You know, one with Alice's band on it that he has now. The other one with uh, more live tunes with the band doing the hits. The original band. I think it'd be great. I think it'd be great too. And I, I think we could pull it off too. You know, uh, the fans seem to be there, and if the people, you know, that in Alice's uh, uh, organization uh, were more fan oriented and not so caught up in, I think, I think that it, it could happen, you know, because it's, it's more about getting, giving back to what the fans loved and they, they want more of it, you know, so let's give it to them yeah. and give the rats what they want is kind of what that's all about, you know? Yeah, so maybe we can maybe we can live up to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I fully agree with that. I, I think when you're establishing a band after Welcome to My Nightmare and the Poison album and, and our trash album, I should say, with the Poisons. Yes, of course, you're building something new and, and to revisit ruins everything. But it's 2018. You know, we're not going to be doing this into 2030. Let's just right, right. we're throw, the frosting on the cake. 
Yeah, we're the, let, we're the closers now. <laughs> yeah, let, let's just let's just give the fans what they want, and that applies to Kiss and to the Scorpions and to right, Metallica yeah, and to all those bands out there. Uh, Michael, a great, great pleasure. Thank you for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and say goodbye and hi to the fans in Montreal. We can't wait to play up there for you and uh, rock on without me until I get there. Yes, absolutely. Merci. Thank you, Mitch. Bye bye. Bye bye. Cheers. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. 